Hey everybody, Nick Espinosa, your chief security fanatic here, and today we actually have to talk about DNA privacy because DNA privacy just got way harder to achieve, and quite frankly, I'm not sure if we're ever going to be able to fully lock down and be private with our own DNA. Now, there's some news that is coming from the New York Times today, uh, courtesy of Elizabeth Ann Brown. And I think this is concerning for everybody, and here's what's going on. Over the last decade, if you didn't know this, and I actually didn't either, Wildlife researchers have refined techniques for recovering environmental DNA or eDNA. This is trace amounts of genetic materials, uh, basically, that all living things are leaving behind. So as they're tracking that, I don't know, pack of wolves in the wild or whatever it is, they're able to pull DNA out of the environment to make sure that they can properly track the family of wolves, you know, those kinds of things. Now, eDNA is everywhere. It's floating around in the air, it's lingering in water, it's in snow, you know, it's in even foodstuffs like honey, you know, your cup of coffee, cup of tea, you're leaving DNA. We leave DNA absolutely everywhere. And researchers have used basically the eDNA method to detect invasive species before they take over or to track vulnerable or secretive wildlife populations and even rediscover species that we thought were extinct. Now, the eDNA technology <clears throat> is also used in wastewater surveillance systems to monitor things like COVID and other uh, uh, pathogens. So all along, scientists have been using eDNA, but as they've been doing this, they've been recovering an absolute ton of human DNA, not just pathogen DNA or animal DNA. And to them, uh, and these scientists, it's basically pollution. It's kind of a hum human genomic bycatch that muddies the data of the animal or animals that they are tracking. But what if somebody set out to actually collect eDNA, human eDNA, on purpose? And that's where we get into trouble because new DNA uh, techniques for collection are quote-unquote like catnip for law enforcement officials. And that's according to Aaron Murphy, a law professor at NYU School of Law, who specializes in the use of new technologies in the criminal legal system. The police have been quick to embrace these unproven tools like using DNA to create probability-based sketches of a suspect. I've talked about that before here on this podcast. Now, this basically could pose dilemmas for preservation uh, you know, of privacy and civil liberties, especially as technological advancements allow for more information to be gathered from even smaller eDNA samples. And Dr. David Duffy, who's a wildlife geneticist at the University of Florida, and his colleagues have been using a readily available and affordable technology to see just how much information they could get from human DNA gathered from the environment in a variety of circumstances, such as outdoor waterways and the air inside a building. So the results of their research were published uh, basically today, May 15th, in the Journal of Na uh, Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, demonstrate that scientists can recover medical and ancestry information from minute fragments of human DNA that's just simply lingering around in the environment itself. Forensic ethicists and legal scholars say that the Florida team's findings increase the urgency for comprehensive genetic privacy regulations as well. And for researchers, it also highlight, highlights the imbalance of rules around such techniques in the United States. It's basically easier for law enforcement officials to deploy half-assed new technology than it is for scientific researchers to get approval for studies to confirm that these systems even work. Meaning the police are seeing something that these researchers are doing, saying we can apply this to criminality. The researchers are saying, hang on, we're in the process of actually proving if this is a viable technology and the cops are Leroy Jenkinsing it all the way out there building profiles that may not necessarily be accurate or DNA markers that may not necessarily be clear. And it's been clear for decades, though, that fragments of our DNA are all over the planet 
and it really didn't seem to matter. But now scientists believe, or they believed rather, the DNA in the environment was too small and too degraded to be meaningfully recovered, much less used to identify an individual like a human being, unless it came from distinct samples. So, you know, you need a blood stain, you need an object, you know, the, the, the murder weapon has your DNA on it, that kind of thing. Wildlife researchers embraced environmental DNA anyway, because they were looking for very small segments of DNA, scanning what they call barcodes that will simply identify creatures in a sample to a species level, meaning, oh, we know it's wolf DNA or, you know, moose DNA or, you know, whatever it is, and there you go. But after finding surprising levels of human DNA in their samples while monitoring for disease in Florida sea turtles, Dr. Duffy and his team set out to get a more accurate picture of the condition of human DNA in the environment and just to see how much information they could reveal about a person that is possibly living or has been in that area. Now, Anna Lewis, a Harvard researcher who studies ethical, legal, and social implications of genetics research, said that the environmental DNA hasn't been widely discussed by experts or bioethicists just yet. But after these findings from Dr. Duffy and his colleagues, it has to be. Now, technology focused on eDNA, she said, could be used for surveillance of certain kinds of people. For example, people with specific ancestral backgrounds or with particular medical conditions or disabilities. And so the implication of such uses, you know, researchers mostly agree on this, depend on who is using the technology and why. While pooled eDNA samples could help public health researchers determine the uh, incidence of mutation, for example, that causes a disease in their community, that same eDNA sample could equally be used to find and persecute groups like ethnic minorities, meaning if they can refine this and you've got autocrat or authoritarian, uh, you know, governments, if they're looking for, let's say, the DNA of a specific ethnic minority, now they can get it in the area, here we are. Now, this kind of genetic data that Dr. Duffy recovered from public places wouldn't work with methods that law enforcement personnel here in the United States currently use to identify individuals, and that's according to Robin o Robert O'Brien, a forensic biologist at Florida International University and former crime, crime laboratory DNA analyst. When law enforcement uh, basically D has DNA analysts compare a crime scene to a sample of the suspect, they're looking for 20 specific markers spread across the human genome that are tracked by the FBI's Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. Now, those markers are only useful if there's a certainty that several of them came from the same person. And because the eDNA fragments that Dr. Duffy is studying and others now as well, they can't capture more than one marker at a time. And so a public, like a public place like uh, Florida's, like a stream in Florida, a river in Florida, large areas in Florida become a huge jigsaw puzzle of just multiple DNA, meaning we're in that public park and a thousand people have walked through it, a crime has been there, you're looking for this eDNA, well, you're going to get markers one at a time from the thousand people potentially that walk through there. How do you know that my marker, you know, is, you know, it coming from the same as a marker 10 yards down the road as opposed to somebody else? These are things that, that they have to adjust for and, and try to figure out. However, though, forensic researchers suggest that an individual identification from eDNA could already be possible in enclosed spaces where fewer people have been. So in other words, if you are one of two people in that room ever and that other person is dead, they could use eDNA potentially to identify you in a way that simply you've never been identified before. Now, last October, a team from Oslo University's Hospital Forensic Research Center piloted a new technique <clears throat> to recover human DNA from air samples and was able to construct a full CODIS profile from airborne DNA inside an office. And so 
this is where we're heading, and this is obviously the concern. I mean, I wrote an article for uh, Smirconish.com as to why I wouldn't spit in a tube and send it out to, like, the 23andMe's of the world due to privacy issues, but my DNA is floating all over the place. I, you know, not just my house, not just the office, you know, I, but I travel, so my DNA is going to be in airports. It's going to be in hotels. It's going to be in, you know, client locations. It's going to be in the local Home Depot if I go in there and buy something, or my local supermarket, and on and on and on. And so we spread DNA unknowingly all over the place. It's just human human nature. It's physiology. And so by virtue of that, I think we've got a real serious issue here because if we don't start putting privacy regulations in place that protect our DNA, there's no reason why we wouldn't see the same thing uh, with a geo warrant that we see Google being served to, let's say, a local supermarket or something along those lines. Now, if you recall, I've done videos, podcasts, and talked about it on my radio show with warrants, meaning let's say I'm within a one mile radius of a murder. And so now uh, essentially all of my Google searches, all of my Google information is turned over because everybody in a one mile radius is part of this geolocation blanket warrant. And even though I have nothing to do with, let's say that murder it happened, you know, half a mile away from me from somebody I don't know. I am now in that vicinity and they are now looking at that information. So imagine a murder scene where they're just basically hoovering up the air, hoovering up the dirt, getting these little eDNA markers and saying, okay, great, we've got all of this. Now, what happens if I walk past that place a month ago? You know, can they identify that? Or if my DNA is there, let's say I stop to catch my breath and put my hand on a wall or something like that and then walk away, am I now a suspect simply because I just happen to be at that place at the wrong, you know, well, well, the right time, but the wrong place. And so these are things that we have to consider. And, and if we are just going to let law enforcement or the government essentially do whatever they want with the DNA without good privacy laws, and again, we don't have fully hardened former privacy laws without loopholes for this. I've written about this. I've talked about this. That's a huge problem, people. So so there you go. I think if they're pulling DNA out of the air from a privacy standpoint and a legal ethics standpoint, we're in serious trouble. And so I think it's time to start really passing these laws. I think it's time to really start looking at this privacy. And I think, quite frankly, the New York Times' article here does a really good service because we've got to be talking about this and we've got to be pushing this forward. And so that is your news of the day. And please like, share, follow me here on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. And please feel free to subscribe to me at YouTube as well. And as always, stay safe. Stay online and please attempt to stay private. Thanks, everybody.